IMG, I know you've been looking forward to this information, but I'm coming by to tell you that finally, the doors open for the IMG Roadmap course on April 5th, 2020. That's Monday, April 5th, 2020. And class starts on April 19th, 2020. So you can go right now to imgroadmap.com slash p slash p 2020 to sign up right this moment. Guys, we have limited seats available. If you want to be a part of this six-week life coaching program with me, you have to do it right away. I'll see you guys on the other side. The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the IMG Roadmap Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Mikhail. She has been on the IMG Roadmap before. So she is actually a phenomenal OBGYN who is currently in fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility currently. And I invited her on the show today to not only, you know, refresh us about the advice she'd given us about matching into OB before. And if you are wondering, I'll have that link to her prior episode in the description for this podcast. But she came back on today so we could talk about something which is really important and particularly affects non-US IMGs, and that is the J-1 visa. So I had a J-1 visa. Uh, Dr. Mikhail will share her experience as well. But welcome to the IMG Roadmap Podcast, Dr. Mikhail. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing phenomenally well, despite Thanks the crisis. having me. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you can make time to join us. I'm sure you have a busy schedule. And so we really appreciate you spending any amount of time with us, inspiring IMGs. Anything I can do to help. Okay. So let's get right into it. Before we start, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, what makes you an IMG and where you're at in training? Okay. So I am actually a Canadian citizen. I'm born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, and I actually went to a Caribbean medical school called Saba University School of Medicine. And for those who don't know where that is, it's a tiny little island right next to St. Martin. And AUC is kind of the sister school to it. And I kind of was having some difficulty getting into medical school in Canada my first year and was given the option to go into graduate school, which would delay my plans by several years by the time I obtained the PhD. And so I just decided I would kind of go the IMG route, go to a Caribbean school and figure it out later on. So it it was definitely a little bit of a tougher road for me, mostly because I was impatient and I didn't want to delay starting medical school. But retrospectively, I'm really happy I did that. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you know, I have a very similar story, maybe from a different country, Cameroon, but, you know, despite the hurdles, I still appreciate the journey. So definitely understand that 100%. So I invited you today so that we could touch a little bit on the J1. You know, 
even people from Canada have to get a J-1 visa or an H-1B, I would assume, just by virtue of being a non-U.S. citizen. And I didn't know this, honestly. I'm just going to be very honest with you. I didn't know Canadians needed a visa for the longest. I felt like all North America, you know, yeah, I felt like it was North America. It should be different. But can you just tell us a little bit about that visa status and what you understand it is? I mean, guys, plus both of us are not attorneys. We're both doctors. So this is not legal advice. This should not supplement legal advice and go always go to the USCIS for information, but we're just going to share from our perspectives as doctors who've had these visas. So basically the premise of a J-1 visa, which is the primary type of visa that most residency and fellowship programs offer, it's saying that there is a need for a physician of this particular specialty in your home country. And so it's asking the U.S. to essentially give you um, temporary status in the country while you do your medical training on the premise that you have to leave once you are done your training for at least two years. Yes. And that is very important because, you know, a lot of sometimes as IMGs, we forget that the premise of that visa was not to stay in America, (laughs) even though a lot of us ended up choosing to practice here and have moved on to obtain permanent residency through that process. But the original intention was not that. Thankfully, because there's a shortage of doctors everywhere in the world, including the U.S., it's open or there is a pathway for J-1 visa holders to become permanent residents and then practice in the States, provided that they offer their services within the first three years of graduating their training in an underserved area in the U.S. So, you know, with that, there's an additional clause just for everybody listening. After training, there is a specific clause within that training visa exchange opportunity or exchange visa opportunity that requires the person to practice in an underserved area for three years. And that underserved area is state specific. So that means each state has what they would define as underserved. Underserved doesn't always mean you know, in the middle of the mountains of nowhere. Yeah. It could be a public health department area. It could be an area that has a high migrant, pop, immigrant population. It could be an area that serves a huge number of Medicaid pa- patients or an area that serves a wider zip code. So, you know, you could be in a city, but then that city serves a surrounding underserved area in a specialty that is rare or scarce in that, in that particular uh, designated location. So there are so many opportunities for people with the J-1, but uh, Dr. Mihail, can you tell us us your perspective on that? So as a Canadian, I do actually have a little bit of a unique situation where unlike being from a different country that is further away from the border, aside from doing the three-year return of service to try and stay in the country, you can actually do something called that uh, Conrad program where you actually live in Canada if you're on a border and you can commute into the U.S. every day to go to work for two years. And then once you've paid back those two years, then you can work on your status in the country. Now, I'm actually engaged, but technically, even when you're legally married or have children with a U.S. citizen, you still cannot get out of this binding of the J-1 visa. 
And so it doesn't matter if I'm married and I have a kid with a U.S. citizen, I have to pay that back somehow, either the three-year waiver or the two years of living in my country while I commute. Right, right. And that is something that um, I, you know, I don't, on the other side, that do not have that opportunity or I'm not married per se, but I know of IMGs that were married to U.S. citizens and could not escape that requirement. (laughs) So it's sort of like, even if you... Yeah, it's very frustrating because for the general public, when you are a spouse of a U.S. citizen or a parent, you can benefit from certain additional privileges, which are not granted to the the J-1 physician docs. Because we are physicians and we would actually contribute quite a bit to this country. Right, right. Absolutely. So I'm actually on the USCIS's website right now, and I'm just going to read a little bit about the Conrad 30 waiver program, just so that we're clear for the listeners. It says that the Conrad 30 waiver allows J-1 doctors to apply for a waiver for the two-year resident requirement upon completion of the J-1 exchange visitor program. So this is in accordance with Section 214 of the Immigration Nationality Act. So basically what Dr. Mikkel said before, this allows for the physician to practice for two years in the States prior to proceeding with the rest of their career. Correct. Yeah. The J-1 visa applicant or J-1 visa medical, the J-1 medical doctor must have a contract from a healthcare facility that's in an area designated as a healthcare shortage area. They must have a no objection letter from their home country. They must uh, agree to, to begin employment at the healthcare facility within 90 days of receipt of the waiver. And they must agree to be employed full-time in H-1B non-immigrant status at the designated health professional shortage area, medical underserved area, or medical underserved population. Which is a little bit tricky for REI. <laughs> so we're working on, I'm, I'm actually working with an attorney now to figure out what it is that I'm even going to do because they're definitely making it difficult. Yeah. It's uh, not necessarily covered by insurance in the majority of states. And so it's a little bit of a tricky situation. I would understand that. Yeah. Because um, it's been my understanding in the past that they prioritize the J1s for what is considered primary care. So that is, you know, Mm -hmm. internal family, general OB, so uh, obstetrics and gynecology without additional subspecialization, pediatrics, and I think, I think I'm missing one. I think psych, but they, so they have, they, they give those specialties first priority, but that being said, I know, for example, I know REI is very different from what I'm mentioning, but I know at the facility that I worked at where I obtained my waiver we had nephrology that was also J1. We've had in the past pulmonology that was also J1. And we've had, of course, the primary cares, internal and family medicine um, and peds that have been J1. So, you know, there is a way, I just don't know the way, but I know that it, it is possible. But getting a good attorney, guys, could be life-saving. I had a really good attorney and I'm very appreciative of my experience with her. She's no longer my attorney now because I finally got a green card, but getting a good attorney can really save you the stress. And most of the time that fee is... It's a one-time fee. Did you yeah. experience 
Is that where you, you just have like one fee and then once you get where you, to where you need, you're not really paying per hour? So my attorney was, mine was different because my employer in my contract, I made it very clear that I wanted it to state what portion of my, what portion of the attorney's fees were covered by my employer. Oh, even better. Yes. So I had, I think they allocated about, I want to say 10 or $15,000 to legal fees. And so I didn't know anything about how much I owed until she ran out of the 15,000. And when she did run out of, when she had used up whatever my employer was paying for it, then it, I was already at the point where I was applying for my green card. And so I, I only paid from pocket the final fees to get my application done. And at that point, as you would imagine, Dr. Mikhail, I was just wanting to get it over with. I was like, I don't care how much you charge me, but it ended up being an out-of-pocket cost close to $5,000. And that was the first and the last thing I paid her. And within a few months, I got my green card. So it was, it was well worth it. But I think that's another tip I would give anybody listening is you can have it stipulated in your contract that your employer is going to cover a certain amount. And that can vary from person to person. I've read other people's contracts where they give them 5,000, 10,000, nothing, but it, that's where, that's where negotiation comes in play. Do you have any? Um, oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit different if you decide to do a fellowship. So for those who are IMGs and they want to subspecialize, you obviously, it's very similar to residency. You're kind of just wanting to match into the specialty that you want. And so there's no negotiating there. Some people, they wait until they sign with their future employer to negotiate these legal fees. I just kind of jumped the gun ahead of time because I was hoping that I could somehow just get a hardship waiver. And a hardship waiver is probably the third exception to getting out of the J-1 visa requirements of either leaving the country for two years or doing a three-year return of service job in an underserved area. The hardship waiver is one that states that you would have, your partner would have hardship if you leave or your family would have hardship if you leave. And so that's something we're trying to acquire. It's a little bit more difficult being a Canadian citizen and getting a hardship waiver compared to those who are from third world countries or countries where they are seeking asylum. It's a lot easier if you are seeking asylum, but if you're from Canada, then the argument is you pretty much have everything you need in your country, so go back. So that would be the third thing. And so in my case, that's not something I was able to really negotiate with my future employer because I started the process much, much earlier before even looking at jobs, knowing that it takes about a couple years, especially with the current administration. Right, right. And I actually know of another friend who is from India who did the hardship waiver as a result of being married to a U.S. citizen and and had a, a child, a young child. And so separating from her family, of course, will be difficult for her family. And I think to your point, country of origin did make a difference in her case to some degree because she had, I think, a dual 
Thailand, India type of background. So it was, she could prove certain things as far as how far the distance and condition, whatever condition that she was in prior to going into medical school. So I, I, you know, I, I think, and I'll be hoping and praying that it works out for you. I know it will. I really think it will, because we need, we need to have babies (laughs) and people are needing your services. So there has to be a way There is a huge lack of fertility specialists too in the country. My graduating class has two jobs per graduate. Wow. You can only imagine. Yeah. And for anybody listening to this, because this episode, you know, we're recording this around the time of the coronavirus pandemic. And as a result of that, the USCIS is temporarily closed to the public. And so... I understand even that the J-1 visa just very recently, I think this week, they put out some word that it was their services are being suspended. So for persons, for people that are outside of the States, there may be a temporary season of suspension. I don't know when it's going to end, but what I would recommend for anybody listening is to always use the USCIS.gov, G-O-V, USCIS.gov as your primary fact-checking source. So if you hear anything on this podcast and you are you have questions and doubts, please go to USAS.gov. You'll definitely find the answers um, to your questions and it, it'll be factual, it'll be fact-checked. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Mikkel, any final words, tips, advice, recommendations that you want to you want to discuss on this? Uh, my my biggest tip would be. Don't wait too long before getting your statement of need from your home country because it changes from year to year, but sometimes they'll put a cap on how many letters they're willing to provide. And you never want to be that person who is left without a statement of need and cannot get their J-1 visa. So I've seen that affect some people before because they waited too long. And that's definitely on match day. As soon as you get that match, have that, that application ready to roll. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing I would say is for, for people that are going to have a J-1 visa or have a J-1 visa that are listening, that are in residency, when it comes to looking for jobs, if you're not going to fellowship, for example, you want to start a little bit earlier than other people. So if, you, if you're going to graduate, for example, in 2023, you should start looking at jobs in 2021. So don't wait because, you know, the other people can the non-people that don't have J-1s, they can get a job anytime, anywhere, or they could be at home for a month. You don't have that luxury. So you want to start early on to the graduation. Actually, your third year or final year, however long your residency is, you should have a job at least lined up just so that you are not left in the cold. Because once you graduate, you cannot be without a job for over 30 days. You have to leave the States. So just some pointers there for people that are maybe have gone past getting, they've already had their J-1 visa. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing I'm going to ask you, because I know people listening are going to want to know this. Did having a J-1 maybe limit your interview choices when you came to where you applied into residency and fellowship? It did big time for fellowship, a little bit less for residency. I mean, residency is a matter more of how IMG friendly a program is. But for fellowship, what I came across a lot of was, you know, when you graduate residency, you are a practicing OBGYN. And a lot of programs expect you 
to take faculty call. And when you are on a J-1 visa, you cannot moonlight. So that's another thing. You can't get an unrestricted license and moonlight. Whatever salary you get during your training, that's it. And so because many programs required me to work as an OBGYN, I couldn't apply to those programs. Or if some programs require you to apply for NIH-funded grants, you cannot get an NIH-funded grant. And so that caused me to only be able to apply to, I would say, half of the REI programs, and there's only 52 positions per year to begin with. So it's incredibly limiting. Right, right, right. Well, you know, because this podcast, again, focuses on helping other people that could be in similar scenarios that are worried about the limits, right? Because we get, sometimes we get bogged down by how limiting something can be, but then you have people like you that defeat the odds and despite those limits, still make it to where they want to be. And I'm sure that that will carry on for you even beyond fellowship. And even when it comes to this, finding a job and getting situated, I'm very confident that it will work out for you by faith. But for those that are listening, what are some other things that they need to be considering in order to you know, be one of those 52 people as an IMG? Like what are some basic, you know, things that you think are important for them to know? Well, I think that the biggest thing is you have to be kind of a superstar. You have to show these programs, well, you know, I'm going to prove to you that just despite my status in this country, you're still going to want to have me over somebody else where you wouldn't even have to do this paperwork because of what I have to offer. So I focused on publishing as much as I could. I think I, I got like nine publications within even one year of residency. I was involved in so many research projects and submitted multiple first author abstracts for national conferences. And then I think what helped me the most in addition to my research and my CV in general with all the committees I joined, was mostly the networking. So when I did go to conferences, it was incredibly uncomfortable at times to do this, but I would recognize program directors from looking at programs, and I would just go and introduce myself, just walk up to them at the conference, say who I was, tell them in all honesty, that I really would want to be in their program and I hope to have them as a mentor in the near future. And so they know me by face and name. And for some places it worked by, it worked and I got interviews shortly after that. And for other programs, it didn't. And after matching, they did tell me that it was a visa status issue and they weren't comfortable with that. And that's okay because I did have a handful of programs who saw past that and they really didn't care. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that, you know, I really think that there are so many brilliant, brilliant, brilliant doctors and doctors to be that are RGs. And unfortunately, there's this limitation with the visas. But guys, I really strongly think that you should not stop. You don't give up. You don't keep going for what you want. And don't let no hold you back. You know, keep fighting, keep looking up the necessary resources, do whatever it takes to get to where you need to be. Of course, whatever is ethically right. But like, for example, you had to be bold to go to conferences and then not only just go sit in the corner, 
but really walk up to people and introduce yourself and seek out opportunity for yourself. Oh, so yeah. I really, I really think that's so brilliant because a lot of people, we let, we let, we hold ourselves back sometimes when we could be putting ourselves much more forward and, and putting ourselves out there. So oh, actually, can I just add one more thing to that? Yeah. If you plan on going to conferences and trying to network as well, don't forget to ask for their email or their phone number. I know it's, it feels very uncomfortable sometimes to, especially if you're an introverted person, luckily I'm not, but it's still weird to just go up to a program director that you highly respect and you feel a little bit intimidated. And then at the end say, Hey, by the way, can I get your email address and or phone number? But it's important because then they get a lot of people coming up to them, talking to them. But after you meet them and have that conversation, you want to send them an email or shoot them a message just to remind them that, hey, I'm the person that you met. Here's a copy of my CV. I'm still very interested in your program and I'm, I'm hoping to get an interview here. So, and I honestly think it, it works wonders. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and inspiring us and giving us tips and Thank tricks. You for having me. I'll, I'll definitely include, because you had actually done this interview in the past and you walked us through how you match OB and then REI. And you actually talked, you went into so much detail. So I'm going to include that link in the show notes, guys, so you can read her story, learn from her tips and lessons, and then add onto that with this clip of where we just focused on visas. So thank you so much for joining Dr. Mikhail. We really appreciate having you on here. Thanks again for having me. Oh, and if there's anyone who is on the track towards REI, feel free to shoot me a message. I'm on Instagram at Sasha Mikkel, MD. Thank you. And I'll have your links included in the show notes as well, guys. So you can link up with her through Instagram. We'll have her directly linked one click. You can get to her profile. We appreciate your time, Doc. You have a good day. Likewise.